Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. It is Sunday, the 24th of the 1st. Michael, how have you been since last we spoke? I've been tremendous. I've been making snow persons. And to the listener, I hope they too have enjoyed the silence, the blessed silence in the day you didn't need to listen to us. <laughs> I suppose they never need to listen to us. I suppose that's a choice. I can't imagine there are many people out there that have got a, a habit, you know, that, that that needs the that needs the help of some kind of an addiction consultant to get off the TRSI. While that's not a lifestyle choice I myself would make, I think we do need to respect it. Absolutely, I need I respect everything almost well, almost everything. So we'll crack into it. To start with, I actually wanted to talk about um, a piece of work I did during the week that ended up not being a story, but I thought was interesting anyway. There were rumours going around over the last kind of week, week and a half, and there were a couple of stories written that that it was about a a hospital, uh, St. Michael's in Dunleary, and what was alleged to have happened was that administrative staff with no frontline contact, basically pure office-based staff, had been vaccinated ahead of medical staff. And this was, um, you know, considered outrageous. And I know there were people who worked in the hospital reaching out to different people in media to say this had happened. And, um, you know, just how outrageous it was. But I I actually chased it up. And St. Michael has a a wonderful advantage in dealing with the media, Michael. It doesn't have a press department. Oh, wow. So I was able to just get in touch with the master of the hospital and just ask her, um, yeah, what happened here? And she was very, uh, she was very upfront about it. And she said, well, she said that she had attended every one of these vaccination sessions and that she would just resolutely say, yes, some administrative staff had been vaccinated, but there were only administrative staff who were patient facing in some role. And these were people who you know, might meet the public or were dealing with the public uh, or in one instance were part of like the you know, the, the internal supply network, but had been delivering stuff to the COVID ward. And she basically said, look, this, yes, it, it technically did happen, but not in the sense it was done about, above medical personnel, because these people have contact with people who, with the general public, or with people who have been diagnosed with COVID, they were treated as frontline staff. And that's exactly what happened. Now, that to me seems a pretty fair explanation. Also, they wouldn't be wearing the kind of protective gear. I mean, if you're, if you're working on the front desk, you know, admitting people or checking out files or telling people where to go, you're not going to be wearing the same kind of gear that somebody working on a ward would be wearing to protect yourself. I can see where people were upset about it, and it was certainly worth chasing up. I think the problem here may be more with the HSE, considering that my understanding is the HSE has repeatedly told the hospital, and probably other hospitals, that it will deliver vaccines. And then those vaccines simply don't arrive on the day. And there you one night randomly get a hundred and something vaccines. And you just have to deal with it. The word shitstorm seems to be one that one could consider applying to the experience of a number of uh, facilities regarding the arrival or the non-arrival of vaccines, the promised arrival and then the non-appearance. Also, are you hearing this as well? Nobody seems to know who to call. Interestingly enough, after I was talking um, to the to the master of Dunleary, I did call a couple of other hospitals. Because I'd realised that small regional hospitals don't have press offices. And so you can simply call and ask to be directed to the head of it. And by the time you tell them you're a journalist, you're already talking to them. Which uh, <laughs> is uh, remarkably useful, Michael. <laughs> Yeah. So you, you have what they're willing to say on the record, which is just, you know, we're, we're trying the best we can, but there have been some mix, uh, there's been some issues and some misdeliveries. But the most consistent point I heard was that um, they had no idea who was running the HSE. Well, running the HSE or the HSE vaccine rollout? Uh, sorry, the, the vaccine rollout. In many cases, they didn't know what department was running it. You see, that's, that's even better. I, I mean, I have... I have heard and have been told we don't know who's the, the responsible person. But it's not as if they don't even know which department. I mean, it's not even a question that you you, you know the department and you don't know the individual within it. They don't even know which department is doing it. So you're it's just a throw a dart at a at a direct at a telephone directory and oh well okay we got we got Shuan. Ring up Shuan, see if she'll help us out. Yeah, so it um it seems to be a bit all over the place. They, uh, like in, as I was saying, Dunleary did have at least three incidences in which they were promised vaccines and they just didn't turn up. So stuff like that is apparently causing a bit of internal chaos. That might be why our rolling vaccination average is falling. Ah, yes. Well, 
there's lots, there, I think there are many reasons. I, we have wanted to be positive about the rollout of the vaccine because, you know, well, we want it to happen because, well, certainly I do. I want, it, I, want, I want it to be inoculated as soon as possible. And it looked like there was, there was positive stuff happening. There were more, more stuff was coming on board. It was being rolled out after a very slow start. Things were looking much better. Okay, there's a problem with Pfizer. Pfizer are upgrading without consultation, we're told. They're upgrading the facility in Belgium, but that will lead to greater production possibilities, capacity. So later down the road, so that will be, in the long term, uh, a good thing. Now, Gary, you've probably heard that there's a bit of a, a problem with AstraZeneca. They've had a problem, a glitch on the production line, and that's going to mean that we're going to, the EU's and I think it's important to remember the EU's promised initial delivery is going to be 60% less. Now, Ireland was relying fairly heavily on the arrival of AstraZeneca to boost its supply of vaccine. And it's not arrived. We would remember, if we wanted to be on that the uh, AstraZeneca was approved uh, a month earlier. Uh, it, it, by the way, AstraZeneca has still not been approved here. We're still waiting for official approval and then for its arrival sometime in mid-February, but even that's when it does arrive in mid-February, it's going to be less than we thought, which will be a month and a half after it got, uh, it got emergency licensing in the UK. Are the the So the EU's supply first, or uh, first tranche is going to be a lot less than we'd hoped. The UK's deliveries are unaffected, Gary. You know, so God, boo hiss to that horrible Brexit, which is going to mean that we were we were going to get together and use the purchasing power and part of the whole of you, the union to get the best deal for the most vaccines at the earliest moment. And those silly Brits were going to be floundering around the place, desperately looking for it. But, as you say, Gary, if we look at the numbers at the moment, it's not really in that context of the fact that we're actually short on vaccine going into the future. We're actually top of the pile along with France at the moment on the rolling seven-day average. And it mean by, what I mean by that is you take the average number of doses per 100 people that have been done in the last seven days. So you take the total number of people that have been uh, given a vaccine in the last seven days in any one country, you get the average per day and then you per 100 people. And so the number in Ireland is 0 0.13, France 0 0.13, Spain. Now, the thing that struck me about that, because it goes down to what, 0 0.1 and so on, Denmark is down at 0 0.07. Now, Denmark has been very good. So I looked, I rolled them back. And the, the, the bad news is, and you can see this on and any of the graphs or any of the visuals you see up there is we're we're slowing down our rollout of the vaccine is slowing down now that makes no sense to me gary we're, we're not exactly into the into the meat of this uh, anywhere near we're, we're still at the beginning of this and our average number of vaccinations per day is 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 decreasing i know it's tedious for people, but if we look at the Israeli experience where they start to vaccinate on the 20th of December and on the 20th of December, by, by the 21st of December, their rolling average is 0 0.17. They peak before they have a decline because they, were, they had a little bit of a supply glitch themselves, which was not so much a supply glitch as, but as a result of their success. They've been so successful that the supply had to catch up a little bit. They went up to 1.45 doses per 100. They're back up now. They're continuing to rise until yesterday up to, they're up to 1.9. Uh, 1.9, we're on 0 0.13. So that's more than 10 times more doses per day. We sh if we're like this now, and we're facing into a fact that we didn't get as many Pfizer's as we should have because of the EU uh, procurement fuck up. And AstraZeneca isn't going to deliver. And if we're going to have to hang around as long as they're in, to overcome, remember that phrase, Gary, we came across with regulatory hurdles, mm -hmm. which they're very fond of, for Johnson and Johnson. 
I don't know. I mean, there also there are some. I'm not a happy bunny, Gary. I'm not a happy bunny at the moment about this. Thing. I mean, it's having really hoped that we were getting to a point where things. We also not that this matters a damn, but you know, we were we were going to do a competitive thing on the uh, total. The just the if you're looking at the vaccines, the total number of vaccines per hundred people, we have slipped down the charts. Denmark is number one, Spain has taken over at number two, we're down to number three, 2.47, Italy 2.22. Uh, Germany, uh, 1.95, although Germany is a day behind. It's not looking great. Now, there's also, there's no great deal of agreement at the moment, is there? About, I mean, I've seen, did, did you see the projected, have you seen any of the projected uh, percentages? I saw Politico had, um, they put up a, um, I think it was a day or two ago, they put up at current rates by the end of summer, uh, what percentage of adults will be vaccinated in all of the EU countries. And uh, some of the countries really need to speed up, apart from the UK. What's the UK going to be? Uh, if the UK can keep its current trajectory, and because the AstraZeneca vaccine is not going to be, they're not going to see the falls in... Um, in supply levels that we in the EU will see, because they make it there for the most part, uh, they are on track to vaccinate 83% of their adult population by the end of summer. Now, the political doesn't just... The political projection is going on the basis of current effects. It isn't based... They're not, from from my memory, they're not projecting that there's a continue... That, this, that the graph of acceleration continues. But uh, you have to say... Uh, the last time I saw Sam Bowman was tweeting out there, in one day they had got up to, what, 471,000 vaccinations, which is a tremendous piece of work. Yeah, I think most days they're, they're getting over 300,000 vaccinations. They're, they're, they, are, they really seem to be banging up. What's our projected number there, Gary? Uh, our current projections, uh, we will have 23% of the adult population uh, vaccinated by the, uh, by the end of summer. So twenty three percent. Yeah, we would need to increase our current daily doses uh, administered, according to Politico, by about uh, three hundred and twenty percent. That sounds like a lot. And also, and yet the minister is confident that we look by September would we'll be looking at seventy percent yeah according the, uh, to uh, politico if we stay with the current level of daily doses the estimated month when 70 percent of adults uh, would be vaccinated would be april would you like to guess the year <laughs> no i would not uh, a current rate april 2023 oh sweet jesus oh my god oh god this is just oh these people are so fucking incompetent Oh. Now, to be fair, that still leaves us the fourth highest in the EU. When I say these people, I'm not specifically just talking about our own dear leader and leaders, but the EU, who we decided as a nation, we said, well, we decided, the government, Michal Martin and Leo Varadkar decided, yes, we will entrust the procurement and distribution of the vaccines to the Commission. We will be... In solidarity with you, we won't be like those nasty Germans and Italians and French and Dutch people who are going off and buying the vaccine off their own bat, Gary, even though, as we have said, it is a competence of the sovereign. No, we said, no, we don't want to be any of that nonsense. None of that noise here. We're going to be good Europeans and we're going to trust the lives of our citizens to the competence and efficiency and speed and dedication and execution of the EU bureaucracy and the commission well i think that was a that was a great decision if it makes you feel any better we were saying there that the italians had overtaken us but uh, according to this chart italy won't be finished until december 2027 yeah i'm gonna have a I, i'm gonna have a fiver uh and an espresso i think the italians are going to speed up very speed up a they little would bit need to speed up 10 times over to get to the uh, 70% by September. Terror. Bulgaria, I assume, hasn't really started vaccinating people. because No, Bulgaria hasn't started hardly at all. And one of the reasons is that Bulgaria is waiting for the cheap vaccines. I mean, genuinely, they are waiting for the cheap vaccines. That's the Germans... 
bought some of the the Pfizer availability from the Bulgarians because they didn't want it because it was too dear. If the Bulgarians stayed at their current pace, it would be August 2040 before they finished. Which I suppose is the, is the great flaw with this chart. You assume everyone is going to speed up um, and that us slowing down is just a temporary blip. I would have the concern that some of the speed we're seeing at the minute, because we are going very, very fast at the minute, uh, relative to other European countries, is that we reorganized things to put the hospitals on the highest tier. So yes. therefore we're dealing with a captive population. Now we've pushed the uh, nursing homes back to the highest tier because I don't know if you've seen the debt rates in nursing homes uh, recently, Michael, but we, uh, we're basically replicating the start of the year again. Oh, it's, it, it's, sh- it's fucking shameful. It is absolutely shameful. Joanna Tuffy has been consistently drawing, trying to draw attention to this. As you know, I'm a bit of a fan of Joanna. I don't know why she's in the Labour Party. We will hopefully be having a chat with her sometime in the next few weeks. But Joanna Tuffy has been drawing attention to this in social media, that if you look at the number of people who are dying, not the people who are getting sick, the people who are dying, they are not dying in hospitals, they are not dying in ICUs, they are dying in care homes, they are dying in numbers which are, the, are similar or indeed worse than we saw first time round. But we were supposed to know better this time, Gary. Yeah, considering that the last time, I think we all agreed that that was a disaster and shouldn't be replicated, and we appear to have replicated it. And if you do recall, Michael, we had originally put nursing homes as the first tier, the highest tier of vaccination targets people should be vaccinated with. And then we moved them down below the hospitals. And I think we said that there was some concern about anaphylaxis, which can happen and but is very rare um, and can be dealt with if you have people on hand. But it was decided that we would instead focus on hospitals. And I had a bit of a... Uh, go with that idea because i don't think there's a lot of point vaccinating people who are in their 20s uh, as your first point of call i think there were a number of issues well anaphylaxis the, I, i've seen different numbers but we'll go with the, with the worst number shall we say that uh, i saw from the charlotte Lozier institute which said that there were reported anaphylactic in events which i love that events in one in, in one in one in every hundred thousand i've seen them i've seen people say is it's more like one in every five hundred thousand but was, but that is dealable with and uh, the pop that would not necessarily actually realize in any anaphylaxis in any case because the pop the, the care home population is less than hundred thousand and you know the numbers don't work like that gary i think the reality was that the reason that it was there aren't there are people out there, Gary, bad-minded, cynical people who said that the real reason that it was was because they found that they couldn't do it, that they put them in at first place, but then discovered it. For example, we had issues around the 50-question form that had to be filled in, the, da- the certain kinds elements of personal data, around, say PPS numbers or whatever, that were not available to all of the care homes didn't have these things on. Also, there was the issue of Consent, which had not been sorted out, because there was a a belief that that some of the people that were going to be given the vaccine, it was doubtful whether or not they could give fully informed consent. And because we don't have the legislation that deals with that kind of thing, apparently, that they weren't able, they, they wouldn't be able to give the wouldn't be able to give the vaccine to these people until that had been kind of sorted out. So I think reality was they. They found that care homes just turned out to be hard, Gary. It's just been awkward and difficult. So they said, listen, we'll go for hospitals and we'll come back to the care homes when we've sorted that out. Yeah, and I mean, the, the HS, the speed we're doing this vaccination is far higher than I would have expected. And you'd think that would be a good thing. But the problem is, I'm curious how we're doing it. And that's why I think it is due to our uh, focus on the hospitals. And once we go to the wider public... Uh, it'll be interesting to see if that stays. And that's not to be the the pessimistic voice here. It's based on the simple understanding that the internal mechanisms of the HSE, like the the structural aspects of it, the logistics, all of that, are a total clusterfuck. So for us to be able to outpace, let's say, the Germans would indicate that something is a little bit off here. You have to you have to be sceptical if we were doing better. No, of course, if I'm wrong, that would be fantastic. And I'd be very interested to see 
how the HSE turned that around. Can we not get Amazon to do it? Amazon actually did, uh, after Biden was elected, did send a, a letter over saying that they were happy to be involved and work with them in the distribution. Well, I'm saying Amazon, I'm not saying that as a, as a joke. I'm saying that the, the, this is an issue of logistics. So you want to look at someone whose expertise is in logistics. And we have a big Amazon presence here, and Amazon have to be the big guys when it comes to logistics. Amazon or DHL or one of the big airliners. And these people, they, they do logistics. We don't. The HSE certainly doesn't. Oh, by the way, <laughs> in a moment which perhaps one, one feels she didn't quite take the temperature of of, of, of opinion before uh, coming out with it, the, the chair of the, the president of the commission has said, Gary, that we're going to have, now that we have all these vaccines around, we, we should be giving away some of our vaccines to to the WHO. What's it, COVAX? Is that the, COVAX is the international organ, sort of out, out, uh, rollout or body for dealing with the third world. Now, I have no doubt it's the correct and moral thing that when there are vaccines available, and that by which I mean surplus vaccines available, then they should be distributed where they can do uh, good. But right now, we don't have a surplus. We don't have even a sufficiency. So to announce that we're now going, because she said, oh, you know, in a couple of months' time, we're going to have more vaccines than we need. Well, your mouth to God's ear, but we shall see. But in other news, the Hungarians, those wily Hungarians, Gary, they're at it again. Hungarians have signed on for two million doses of Sputnik, the Russian um, vaccine, which they have authorized for use. They've also, they're going through the process, they're going to authorize emergency use for the Chinese Sinopharm, and they're getting a million doses of that. Which, here's a fun fact for you, already being used by Serbia. Actually, the, the, the Sinovac uh, vaccine, China's vaccine, it's an interesting one. Actually, someone came up to me there the other day and was talking about the amount of uh, how in Israel the Pfizer vaccine hadn't worked and they were seeing all of these infections and deaths. And I sort of went, where did you read that? Because I'm curious if I'd missed some explosive finding. I think they said the Global Times. <laughs> the Global Times. Yeah, I just I just Googled to see how Israel was doing and um, came up with the Global Times. Now, for those who don't know, the Global Times is owned by the Chinese Communist Party. It's considered to be the mouthpiece of um, the more aggressive leanings of the Chinese Communist Party. So it comes out with things that could be considered uh, the views of the Chinese Communist Party or more exactly warnings about where things are going. So when China and India have problems and they start getting bad, the Global Times will start publishing stuff on just kind of like, I mean, if there was a war, we'd crush them. It also, you might, we might point out, to an extent will represent the commercial interests of the Chinese Communist Party because people forget, I think two of the largest, shall we say, corporate, not even their corporations, but um, <coughs> investors in the Chinese economy are the Chinese Communist Party and the Red Army. Mm, but it, it was uh, it was interesting because what I saw is there were there were recent clinical trials of Sinovac in Brazil, and they found that the Sinovac vaccine was about fifty point four fifty point three percent effective, which is disastrous for it because if it ever drops under fifty percent, uh, the WHO will not. Uh, in order to be recognised as a vaccine, you actually need to be above fifty percent effective. So the day after that. The Global Times started publishing things about issues with the Pfizer vaccine in its English language uh, publication, and since then has consistently published them. So I don't think this is, I think this is effectively just the Chinese pushing back and going for a, shall we say, more aggressive form of diplomacy on what they see as an attack on their vaccines. Well, actually, it's just their vaccine. The other ones haven't really been mentioned. Sinovac has been estimated around 53. Other, others have put it higher, but the one in Brazil, which is the one we maybe should pay the most attention to, is around 53. The Sinopharm is giving reported efficacy is around 79%. The Russian is up at 92%. And, and there's reason, well, there are reasons, shall we say, to believe that the Russians may actually be genuine, that there are 
proper uh, large scale, large international pharmaceutical companies that have actually agreed to go in with Russia, having seen the data, looked at the trials, that they're they're going to go into production with the Russians. So it's just, of course, the, the Hungarians are doing this in a gross act of a lack of solidarity. Do you know why, Gary? I, I, mean, I, I don't like to say this, but it's a, it has to be said. Hungarians care more about Hungarians than they do about the European idea. And keeping Hungarians alive, even if that does damage to European solidarity. I would say that in the long run, a load of people dying unnecessarily because of EU decisions might be more damaging to EU solidarity. I'm just, I'm just saying it would probably be a lot easier at the end of it. And it depends where. Mm. You know, I mean, frankly, there are parts of the EU where for large numbers of them die. I mean, obviously that happened in Ireland. That would not in the least be damaging because, for a start, it wouldn't be reported on. If it was reported on by anybody other than or it wouldn't be believed. And even then we'd have to say, well, you know, we, we can't leave Europe. We can't leave Nanny. We'd get, we'd get something like, uh, we'd find a way to blame the British. Yeah, absolutely. Something about AstraZeneca being made in Britain. Something like that. Um, on the on the actual efficiency of the, the Chinese vaccine, that all the countries I've seen it in are reporting wildly different figures from 50 to 73 to mid-90s. The problem is, is once you've ordered the vaccine, you have a... Um, you have a fairly solid incentive to rate it quite highly or else you've just spent a lot of money on a vaccine that doesn't work. So I think when you look at the countries that are coming out and saying, well, it's 90% effective, they tend to be, you know, like Turkey. Which is doing better, by the way, <laughs> it's vaccine program at the moment than it had been. But yeah, I, I wouldn't go for the Chinese one myself. But I'll tell you, if someone offered me Sputnik, I would take Sputnik. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if the Russians did fairly well with this. Russia has quite an advanced biological warfare capability. <laughs> Which has been retooled, Gary. Yeah, I would imagine the Russian state was deeply involved in the production of this, regardless of what's on the wrapper. And as I said, they, they are very, <laughs> very capable of biological weapons. So I would imagine that can be used. Outside of Lyshenko, let's say they're just very they're very capable of biology generally. Yeah, yeah, they are they are quite advanced. Um anyway, that's the state of the the situation of the vaccine. I'm a bit I'm all I'm a bit a bit disappointed, a bit knocked by it. I thought we were doing better. Um if anybody wants to have a look at the data anyway, there's go to the there's there's a website many, many wonderful websites out there. Our world in data and you can look at the the, the performance uh, and visually, and it gives you a sense. What's really kind of worrying at, for, at this stage is the line of vaccination is downward, and it shouldn't be. It should. You should. We should be going up. I have like the the charts that have started to to go around the place, usually used by government. Uh, and government associated people where we knock out the UK and Israel and say well let's just look at the EU they go isn't the EU program beset by systemic problems which are basically crippling every country yeah yeah yes about just sorry on the subject I'm going to go back on the EU for the things didn't go brilliantly well for the first starts off the 20th of December goes to the first fortnight or so but since around, say, the 3rd of January, last 20 days, there's been a, a steady, I'd say it's like, if you look at a, a graph, the graph is around like a 20, 25 degree, and it's just every, they're just constantly just going up and up and up. And they're uh, like, they're over four, they're heading for 0 0.5, uh, rolling the average of vaccines dosed per, per, per minute. So the, the, they're doing very well in the UK. Sorry, you say about the, the yeah the the manipulating the, the well they they say it's not manipulated they say it's you know it's the EU average which is technically true but it's not being done because it's the EU average it's it's being done because it makes everyone look better because if you don't put in like the people doing really well you look like you're doing better worth pointing out that the, we're still looking at the United Arab Emirates the United Kingdom Bahrain uh, the United States and Israel. Uh, at the uh, are still ahead they are still the the top five so well you know 
Maybe it's something to do with the Middle East. Maybe it's Baba Ganoush. I mean, Israel already has um, 39.79% of its population uh, vaccinated. Is that, is that its population or its adult population? Uh, vaccine uh, Vaccination doses administered per 100 people. 39.79. That is, I mean, that is... Oh, sorry, yeah, yeah, sorry, yeah. Because the last time I looked, it was a lot less than that. And that's only a little while ago. That's a fantastic... And you have to give it to them. That's a fantastic result, isn't it? Oh, yeah, and they're going up by... Some days they're going up half a percentage of their... Uh, some days they're going up a full percentage. That's uh, that's an incredible. I mean, to be fair, if you look... Look at the UK. The UK is at 9.32. And the highest in the EU is Denmark on 3.39 and Denmark is ahead by a like Denmark Slovenia and Spain at the top 6.2 3.39 and 3.64 and 3.49 2.49 Denmark is ahead significantly ahead of the rest and then the Brits are doing well I mean you have to give it to them Considering that they were going to be absolutely stymied and bollocks by being... I mean, the UAE is actually doing fantastically well. Tremendous. 24.54. And Bahrain, again. I suppose there may be an element there of the UAE and Bahrain saying, how much? Listen, we don't care how much. Sam Bowman is very much of the opinion, and I always defer to Sam when it comes to these things. Sam is saying, you know what? Go up to them and say to them, listen, lads... If instead of giving you 20 quid, we gave you 50 quid, how would that do? Instead of giving you 50 quid, we gave you 100 quid. Or instead of 100, we gave you 200. He said, whatever people we were just... He was doing this in the context of looking at our plan. He said, okay, the UK is... Sam is based in London these days. The UK's rollout is going actually pretty well at the moment. But there are things we could do that could even turbocharge this and get this done even faster. He said... At the kind, the money that we're talking about, that this the to achieve an even more rapid rollout of the vaccine, it would be more than worth it. It would be better. It would be really, really good value. And I go back just to our own experience. We've said before, guy, there's five million, ten million doses, or even five million Johnson of the Johnson Johnson because they, it's a single single doser. If we had the structure, if we had confidence that the vaccines in place we had the structure to roll this out quickly it really will be worth our while leaving aside silly things like saving lives and protecting people and families just the economic benefits of rolling this out at a seriously fast rate it would be so worthwhile us just getting out getting getting out the checkbook seek and tiptoeing around and, and just going where we can get it with the the PUP on its own is probably at this point going to be costing about half a billion a month. Surely more. I mean, it's already up at like it was previously. It was already at a hundred million, which would be four hundred million a month. We say, and we know that we know that after Christmas and and, and with this lockdown, numbers have gone up again. Right, but let's let's be let's be fairly conservative with it. Like, it's it's almost certainly on its own hundred billion or half a billion. Then you've got. The economic costs of keeping the business open, uh, businesses open, the grants, uh, everything like that. Then you have to look at the cost of what happens when we get to the end of this, and there are businesses that simply can't afford the reopening costs. Stuff like that. There is going to be a massive, massive cost to all of this. So at that point, yeah, you could you should run the maths, but I would suspect there's basically no price you could feasibly actually pay. That wouldn't end up making you better off. Yeah, I, 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 I really can't see it. I mean, with uh, with only five million of us, and the fact is, these things are not massively expensive. They are not. You, I mean, the most expensive, and they're talking about Pfizer paying top dollar for Pfizer is 25, 25 quid a pop, and and all the way down to a fiver for the cheapest ones. Well, if you think about it, if if we wanted to get four million vaccines at a hundred euro a vaccine. That would be our PUP. That would be less than our PUP um, costs for a month. And we're not paying 100 euro a vaccine. 
Well, no, you're not close to it. Not, not, not the colour of it. I mean, you could, you could say if you were paying fifty, you'd be paying way over the odds, and and for the same money, you could get double that up and say four million vaccines. At which point, we that we could, we would effectively, we would be on the way to uh, being in a position to reopen the country. Yeah, I mean, if we were if we were five million vaccines at fifty euro a pop, which again is way over it, we would spend two hundred and fifty million which is at the very least half of what we're going to spend in the pup on a month so but they won't but they won't do it do you know what we're do you know what we're actually paying according to the leaked documents yeah go on uh we are paying uh 15.5 euro per pfizer vaccine well there you go we got a good deal for vaccines we don't have yeah that's super that is brilliant, yeah, yeah. And when we get them, though, it'll be lovely because we'll have got them cheap. We might be dead, Gary, but we'll have got a deal, and that's the important thing. So, from uh, from one set of endless statistics to another set of endless statistics, but even more niche this time, Michael, because that's what the people want. That is what everybody says. Can we have more numbers, please, lads? More numbers in more complicated forms and at increasing levels of bureaucracy and lower level of relevance to my life. That's the golden line for DC yeah. podcasting. <laughs> Absolutely. So I just wanted to put in a quick note about this. This is in relation to a, um, a pound called Ashton Dog Pound. Now, I, I published some studies on this um, last year about animal cruelty in the pound and standards. And um, it is a horrible place, which is horrible for animals. I would direct you to some of the, the stories that I put out. The very first story I published on it was a story about how staff were improperly euthanizing animals, that they were putting uh, a drug that should have been injected into the animal by a vet. It's a controlled substance. It absolutely should not be used by the public. But uh, staff were putting that into dogs' foods, and it led to a situation where a number of dogs were improperly dosed, and basically over the course of hard to tell exactly how long because we don't know the exact dosage but let's say a day uh, their organs would have systematically shut down and then they would have uh, i believe effectively drowned in their lungs as they uh, as they fill oh, yeah. and uh i did a story on this and i talked to the to the vet who'd set up the system and he happily admitted to me that he had that this had been going on for years frankly it sounded like it had been going on for over a decade but we couldn't get an exact date and the hundreds of dogs had been put down like this and he wouldn't accept that this had happened before but he said it was certainly possible that this had happened before and he had no oversight of it. He didn't go to the pound. He left this to staff that he had put together like a booklet for on how you uh, you do this thing, uh, which shouldn't have been done to start. And he also accepted that when they started doing it, there was, you know, a um, refinement process. And that during that period, dogs may have um, died like this as well. So that, that got published and it was a big hoo-ha and, and it, it's... Amongst the animal welfare groups, Ashton Dog Pound is, is, is infamous. It's, it's well known. Um, and if you're interested in what the standards are actually like, you'll find a lot of people talking about it online. So when I was um, doing that, I was talking to a lot of counsellors as I was putting out stories on it. And the big question was always uh, the tender, because the tender is coming up for renewal this year, Michael. Uh-huh. And the tender came out. So the tender came out there in... Um, January and it was effectively written so that so I make this point before it was a unified tender there were four county councils that came in now they've split it apart and each uh, council is going to tender separately so South Dublin County Council came out with their tender and it looked like it had been written explicitly to ensure that Ashton Dog Pound um, got the contract maybe not explicitly written to do so but when you read it, certainly you would go, it's hard to see how anyone else can um, could win this. And it was actually very interesting what they had done. So you need to make, meet certain technical capabilities to even be considered for the tender. So what they had done is they had constructed it in Appendix 5 of the document. They put a requirement that you have three references um, to even be considered. And these would have to be of a similar size and a similar scale. And you kind of look at that and go, well, yeah, you need references. What's the issue with that? Sure. 
But the actual issue, usually uh, that would be something you would consider and might make someone's tender stronger. These were actually considered to be base level requirements. If you didn't have it, they wouldn't consider you at all. But it also meant that if you were, let's say, an animal welfare group who hadn't done something of this size, but wanted to move into it and could show you had the actual, uh, the staff, you had the money, you had the facilities, you couldn't apply for it. If you were somewhere who did this of the same size and scale, but you had a long-term contract, you couldn't apply for this because you wouldn't have three references. So I use it, 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 it has the impression that the parameters were designed in order to achieve a specific result which had already been pretty well decided on. Yeah, I think that would be, I, I wouldn't say it was explicitly designed for it, but it had the, I would say, the end result that three contracts of a comparable size and scale in the recent past would seem to be quite difficult for most people to uh, put forward. You might have one, as if you had a long-term contract, you'd only have one, maybe two. This seems to be designed for something that had taken on multiple short-term contracts, such as Ashton Dogbound. Right. And basically said, look, there's, there's no way anyone can um, get onto this. And when I talked to a number of counsellors, their initial response was, well, surely it's good to have references. And then you would explain that it's not something that's good. It's something that's required. And it doesn't matter if you can show you have the resources. You With this in, you just can't apply at all. And I sent around a lot of some quite uh, pointed questions. But interestingly enough, the other day, the contract was, um, it wasn't amended. They put out what are called clarifications on it. So they don't have to say they amended the tender. But as part of that, they extended the deadline and said that now they will, um, they will accept delivery of one previous comparable project. What, what I found interesting there is their clarification has the question as well. And it says the condition to provide the three similar size projects delivered is difficult to achieve as the current contract holder, Ashton Pound, has been awarded the contract for numerous consecutive years. And yet, uh-huh. is there a possibility for this criteria to be removed or changed? Now, I'm not sure if they did that due to my questioning. I will say that the week before that came in, I had sent some questions around involving the Local Government Act and whether or not it could have been considered to have been breached by the actions of whoever put together this tender. Maybe. Maybe someone else asked something. I just thought it was an interesting little thing. And uh, the deadline is extended to Wednesday, the 10th of February. So just a, a small... It's not even... I'm not even sure we'll write something on it, although we might write like a you know, tender-changed, after-gripped questions thing. I just thought it was interesting. Tender submissions. That's what the people want. <laughs> it's exactly what I want. Mm. So, moving on from that, are you familiar with the ICGP, Michael? I, Irish College of General Practitioners. I see you keep up to date. Well, I, the GP it was my was my guess, so I thought, well, it's, it's the IC, I, I'm sorry, it's not the Royal College, though. Interestingly enough, the Royal College of Surgeons, the Royal College of Physicians. I think the Northern Irish Group is called the um, Royal College of GPs. They brought out a new document called Guide for Providing Care for Transgender Patients in Primary Care, a quick reference guide. And I haven't seen this reported anywhere, but I, being someone who keeps up to date with all of the latest publications from the ICGP, for some reason, uh, did notice it. And I have some questions in with them uh, at the minute, and it might lead to a story, but the interesting thing about it is who it's written in conjunction by. So this is written in conjunction with LGBT Ireland, who... I don't really have any sense we're terribly involved in this. I think it's it's basically just a stamp, although if it's not, happy to uh, happy to say that. And uh, TENI, the Transgender Equality Network Ireland. Now here's here's where it gets interesting. There are parts of this document where it says that GPs um, what's the exact phrase? I'll tell you. GPs can reach out to TENI for updates and difficulties with treatment pathways, which to me sounds like the ICGP is directing GPs to Tenai as a source for treatment pathways. Think pretty clearly. But Tenai are not a medical organization. Tenai are an advocacy group. Yeah, that's exactly what, yes. The, the, what is it, Transgender Equity Network of Ireland. And they have their own particular philosophical, whatever, view on the uh, on the issue, on the, or rather the issues around transgender uh yeah, so treatment. My question there would be, if a GP reads this document and reaches out to Tenai, and Tenai 
not being a medical organization, advises them on a treatment pathway which does not end up uh, being suitable for that patient and leads to a negative patient outcome of some type. Is the IA, uh, ICGP liable for that? I mean, the GP would obviously carry liability in that they are the they are the person who chooses what the actual treatment pathway is. But would the ICGP, as the overarching body, effectively not have uh, signposted this as the appropriate way of doing with it and therefore hold some liability to it? I just don't see why... Why Why is why would a GP refer somebody seeking a medical intervention or a therapeutic response to people who are not doctors? I, I genuinely... I'm not, and I'm not trying to be crankier I, how appropriate is it for a group which is not expert in this they are not to my my understanding this is they're not it's not a group or an organization of registered psych, psychotherapists endocrinologists surgeons doctors physicians it's, it's an advocacy group and they've an absolute right to engage in that advocacy but why they should be engaged also as an advocacy group how, how, is it appropriate that doctors should be taking a position on this? They can take a position on what might be the best course to take medically for the individual patient in front of them. But should doctors' associations be involved? I, 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 can, I can give you an exact idea of why they're involved in the document. Just when you said there on referring patients, there are particular parts of the document which do say refer patients to Tenai for various supports. This section seems to be more that if a GP has a question about a treatment pathway, they themselves should call Tenai and be advised on the appropriate medical approach. On a treatment pathway? Yeah. But for example, what, what would a treatment pathway be? Well, for something like this, it could be, uh, let's say, what they call gender-affirming uh, hormone treatment. A hormone treatment. So, and again, I'm not trying to be awkward here, but why would you not ring up an endocrinologist? Well, see, that, that I think is part of my question. But I I sent a load of, I sent a number of questions over to the ICGP on this. Um, and one of one of the questions was, I mean, do you have any liability for this? One was, given that you've now recommended these people as a pathway or as a point of call in relation to treatment pathways, what ongoing safeguards do you have to ensure that they remain, assuming they are now, uh, medically oriented in this? Because once now you've published this document, what do you do if in a year ten I come out with something totally mad, assuming they haven't got there already? They said uh, they they said that they would pass on my questions to the study author. So I went back and I had a look at who the authors were, and this is actually particularly interesting. There's two authors on this document. One is Dr. Des Crowley, and one is Miss Vanessa Lacey. Now here's the thing: if you were doing this, you think you would put in someone who specialised in this area. Des Crowley, and this is nothing against him, this is just a weirdness, he specialises in addiction treatment. He's the assistant director of the ICGP Addiction Management Programme. All of his work is in addiction. Well, not all of it, he's it's still a GP, but that is his focus. So why is he writing their transgender care guide? And Miss Vanessa Lacey is the health and education manager of the Transgender Equality Network Ireland. Now, I pulled her CV, and um, she has a BA in psychology. So, and she is now, to be fair to her, she is a currently a PhD student in Limerick Institute of Technology, focusing on uh, grief and loss and the experiences of transgender women. But this is not a doctor. This isn't someone close to a doctor. This is someone with no apparent training in being a doctor. And here's the other thing I found interesting. Some of the language in this report is word for word lifted from previous 10i publications. Well, then I, we're looking, for example, at a fairly positive assessment of... Uh, actually, what's what the, the new language for hormone, the hormone thing? Now, what's, what do they call them in the document? Oh, um, gender-affirming hormone therapy. Gender-affirming hormone therapy. Well, actually, that's not clear to me because there are two types of hormone therapy normally we talk about. The first hormone therapy is what they call puberty blockers, which is the use of gonadotropin-releasing hormone, uh, which is used to suppress the onset of puberty. And then you have what they call cross-sex hormones, which is used after that. But in the Tavistock, they said that people will be aware of the the, the trial in, in the United Kingdom about the consent issue. And in that, 
<coughs> the court felt that the idea that there were two separate stages, first was the puberty blockers and then, uh, which would give people the opportunity to reflect on their gender identity. The 11 year old would reflect on their gender identity and then go on afterwards and having come to a decision with a, the puberty blockers would stop the development of what are called secondary sexual characteristics like say breasts or testes or a penis well not penis penis would be there already but say the, the growth uh, the enlargement of the, of the of the genitals and hair or breasts or whatever musculature and then after that you go on two cross hormones which would be sort of which would reflect, reverse the sort say estrogen or instead of testosterone or vice versa that's a that's new language there like that's very much part of the gender for can I, can I just read you something which i thought was interesting it's 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 both a, how would i say it's uh, it speaks both to the issue but also a wider thing about you know what happens when you look things up at the net if you look at the wikipedia page Right on puberty blockers. Mm-hmm. I just read it very. I think it's worth reading the whole paragraph. Transgender youth are a specific target population of puberty blockers to halt the development of secondary sex characteristics. Puberty blockers allow patients more time to solidify their gender identity without developing secondary sex characteristics. If a child later decides not to transition to another gender, the fully reversible medication can be stopped allowing puberty to proceed. Puberty blockers give transgender youth a smoother transition into their desired gender identity as an adult. Mm, yeah, I've heard that argument before. That's Wikipedia. You know, but I think there is there is an important point there. While it's Wikipedia and shouldn't be trusted, it is widely used by the general public. And therefore what it yeah. says is actually of importance because if it says something that's inaccurate, if we now go to, for example, the National Health Service, the NHS website on this subject, where it used to be written, the effects of treatment with gonadotropin uh, gonadar hormone, replacement hormone analogues, are considered to be fully reversible, so the treatment can usually be stopped at any time after discussion between you, your child and your MDT. This is now what is written on the NHS. Little is known about the long-term side effects of hormone or puberty blockers in, gen- in children with gender dysphoria. Although the Gender Identity Development Service advises that this is a physically reversible treatment if stopped, it is not known what the psychological effects may be. It is also not known whether hormone blockers affect the development of the teenage brain or children's bones. Yeah, the... As we said before, most of the research on this was carried out in children with precocious puberty who were be having puberty at very young ages, and this was to push them back to the time they would normally have it. That's not what these are being used for. I did bring that up to the ICGP and ask them had they taken that into account when they published it, and also did they take into account some of the evidence that came out during the Bell v. Tavistock case regarding uh, how it seemed appropriate to consider puberty blockers and... Uh, further hormone therapies as one treatment pathway considering that it appears once you start down the puberty blockers road you are almost certainly going to continue down it and then they also made the point that um, by delaying natural development you you can't reverse that if you delay the development of someone's brain the period where the brain would have uh, developed normally there are different experiences during that time that isn't reversible. They also made the interest. I thought the interesting point that if you look at uh, say a child that's been on puberty blockers for two years, and that a child that went on puberty blockers when they were say twelve, mm. when they're fourteen, they're not fourteen. That when you compare them to other children who are fourteen, that they haven't actually developed at the same rate and pace in other areas in their psychosocial skills or what or brain function. That they that it doesn't seem to be. The, the, oh, yeah. Well, also, you, well, how, however you decide, however to what level you think it is coherent to talk about the patients, it allows the patients more time to solidify their gender identity. I, Eleven or twelve-year-old kid, I'm I don't know. Solidify your gender identity gives you time to reflect and understand your gender. I, I'm I'm struggling. Maybe maybe this is true. Maybe this is useful. But 
To the extent that you can have an understanding of what your gender identity is when you're 11 or 12, what even those words mean, as opposed to a feeling, or and, and the, there are all sorts of other issues which we don't want to go into here because this is a, an issue for other people at other time, and we can we can maybe come back to it. But as the, the, I think the point, you, the simple point you made there, which is essential, which I was referring to, adverting to the side of it is when you stop development, you stop development, and that development is not that you. You can't play catch up with it. You can't re. You can't somehow go back and, and stuff back in the experience of those two years, three years, or whatever it was in the process when you restart. No, you you are actively changing the course of someone's life in a way that even though you can later cause those developments to take place, you can't take back the time or the the experience that would have happened. Can you read a bit there about uh, uh, what is the phrase gamisha? Saving your gametes. Oh yes, this is this is a. We saw from the Tavistock that there were um, a lot of the the stuff used in this sort of these sort of treatments, these gender affirming treatments, were not designed for this purpose. And a common thing that we have seen is sterility. So the report, weirdly enough, doesn't say that anywhere. No, sorry, Gary. Just a question for you here because I don't know really the answer to this myself. If we're talking sterility, sterility is not caused by the. Puberty blockers is it? It's, that would be caused by the cross cross the cross hormones. It would be caused by the cross hormones, or it can be caused by some of the um, surgical interventions. But that's a more practical. That's a yeah. That's a physiological issue there. But uh, what it does say is, if preservation of fertility is a goal of the individual starting a hormonal transition, then gamete or embryo storage should be considered prior to initiating hormone therapy. It's you could also say hormone therapy will make you sterile or infertile. I would have thought that might be something you might want to signpost a bit more. Because, particularly if you're talking about, let's say, adolescence, it might be good for them to know about the sterility. One, one other line I thought was very interesting is um, they ta- they're talking about the aims of the guide. And they say some GPs may wish to access further training in the area of trans health. This can be provided by Tenai's health and education manager. So the only qualification of relevance that Vanessa Lacey seems to have to this area is that they themselves are transgender. But that does not seem to be sufficient. No, I mean, it's, it could be a very useful thing. I mean, you're talking to somebody who's going to go through the process, be this process, talk to somebody else who's gone through it, that could be a very positive and useful thing, but it doesn't seem to be. It might be necessary, it may not even be necessary, but it's certainly not a sufficient condition, sure. No, and I, my feeling from reading this is that Tenai wrote this. I don't get the sense that uh, that this was very much of an ICGP production at all. If it is, I would question why some of the wording is exactly the same as we've seen in previous Tenai um, versions. But I mean, things like this, the, the definition of sex that's given is the designation of a person at birth as male or female based on their anatomy or biology. That is a very directed definition of sex. A position? I mean, that's taking... It's a, Ultimately, it's, it's it's a denial of sex, isn't it? I mean, that's... No, it's, it's not a denial so much as a redefinition of sex as a momentary designation, rather than something that influences your life. Shall we say the reality of biological sex? The, it, that sex is now we're now rather than gender being a construct, sex is a construct. Yeah, and I could see whether we could do that because the more we see things on, not the deterministic nature of sex, but that sex influences interests, personality traits, uh, areas of um, of development on the average, then the more that comes out, the more difficult this area becomes because. If there is a nat, let's say, biological, neurological differences between men and women, anything in this area becomes much more difficult because you cannot copy that. Sorry, can you just read that definition again? Because I want to ask you a question. Uh, the designation of a person at birth as male or female based on their anatomy or their biology. Their anatomy or their biology. Mm-hmm. I'm imagining that the, the GP's position on this is trans women or women, from which would be the position certainly of Tenny. Um. Well, yes. Although the definition of what they mean when they say woman is um, is is going to be an interesting one. Well, no, we, we, no, I don't think so. Women are women. Trans women are women. Women are women. Everybody's a woman. Um, there some women who have cervixes. Some women have cervixes, and some women don't. We know that cervix-bearing women or cervix cervix-bearing persons, for example, should have pap smears and things. So, if you present to a GP and you're a woman, um. 
would he treat you as he would a woman? Well, I mean, there are those who would say that, you know, that sex, biological sex is engendered at a, a cellular level and that the next big thing in medicine is going to be cellular medicine. That there are differences in anesthesia, that there are issues around you t different approaches to, I don't know, arteriosclerosis or stroke risk or um, cancers or cardiac. Historically, pe doctors would have treated people differently on the basis of their anatomy, indeed, Gary. I mean, how does that work? Does that? I, I, have, I have no idea. Why? At all. I, I have no idea what way they would like this to be done. And I suspect you'd have to call them as a GP to figure out exactly what they want you to do. Because I would imagine, and I think would be correct, that in this set, once you tra transition and you're a trans woman and you're a woman, and on your identity, you, you, you can change your birth cert, you, you are in under Irish law, you're, you, uh, your identity is a woman, you would, all yours would say it was a woman. So if you go into hospital, you're a woman. Uh, even say if you're unconscious and they would treat you as a woman until maybe they, I don't know, they, there was a surgical intervention which caused them to give pause to thought, but I mean, it would be worthwhile considering that. Anyway, that's not, I'm sure, the issue here anyway, it's not a big thing. It's more the issue regarding what is the most uh, suitable w approach to dealing with children with gender dysphoria. There are, I mean, there's all the standards in here, like you should take the affirmative approach towards it, which has its own issues, but is pretty much a standard at this point. Well, no, but it's, but no, hold again, it's not a standard. It's not the standard. For example, it's, it, even though people keep saying it, it is not the Dutch standard. The, but don't, the, the, the Dutch don't use the, 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 even though people always talk about the, the Dutch uh, schedule, the Dutch themselves don't use affirmation. They don't recommend it, or assume that the use of the affirmation approach. Sorry, yes, I'm sorry, Teddy do, yeah, but it isn't. And I mean, they describe... Uh, hormone blockers, uh, sorry, puberty blockers as reversible interventions where there isn't that much research into it and there are certainly a lot of questions about it um, and the possible impacts of it. It's, it's, it is what it is. But I was more surprised that they would, um, that they would refer to an outside body of any type because I, I just assumed there was massive liability concerns there. Yeah, I wouldn't be happy if I was their insurer there, would you? Actually, one of the one of the country's insurers, and I apparently did retweet it in a very supportive fashion, and then delete it very quickly thereafter. So I would imagine there was a sort of retweet automatically because it's a good document, you know, it's a good area. Then have a look at it and just go, oh no. No, 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 no. No, we're not going into that. <laughs> and I think the thing here is, I would split this into two areas. With adults, whatever you want to do with your own body is your own right, whether or not I think anything of it. I don't really care. If you do something and it sterilizes you, well, that's the consequence of your action. However, and this came up in the, the Bell v. Tavistock case, where they, they were talking about children. Now, to be fair, this document does not suggest that approach for children. But they're making the point that um, childs, like a 12-year-old's understanding of what it means to be permanently sterilized cannot be encompassing by virtue of their age. And also the fact that you're getting there before puberty, deliberately. Also, uh, before puberty, I think you could, I, you could have a sense, the child would say, you'll never be able to have any little, have, have any children. You never, children, children have met other children. Another fact is that for, for a number of people who go through this, who, who, who cross, um, who use cross hormones and transition, they will, they will, they will lose sexual function. Well, yes. And how do you explain that to a child? Particularly a child who's, who's not, who hasn't gone through puberty. How do you explain someone who has not gone through puberty, sexual function? And you're never, you're never going to have, you're never, you're never going to have sexual function. That's it. According to the uh, Bellevue Tavistock case, uh, you don't do that in a way that can actually ensure understanding. Would be the general line of it because you can't. Anyway, another another uplifting, uh, another uplifting episode. But as I said, if you're if you're an adult and you want to do whatever, you know, go hog wild. Yeah, and I think on things like this, whatever one's instinctive reaction is. We should let the research be done, let the discussion be had, let the science be seen. There are, the problem with something like this, and then, so I, I, I will allow, <laughs> I'll allow you to close the show, is if this was not, these, this is, say for example, cross, cross arms, but also particularly the, the use of the uh, puberty blockers. This is an off-brand, shall we say, use of drugs. Mm -hmm. And in, uh, it's essentially an experimental use. 
of drugs on children. Because this is not what these drugs were designed for. It wasn't for this. Some of the first, they're used, they're used for precocious uh, puberty. But that's not what they're originally, they originally developed for. They're drugs to be used uh, for cancer patients who are undergoing chemotherapy. If you were going to do this as an experiment, you wouldn't be allowed to do it in a university or a teaching hospital because the ethics board wouldn't allow you to do it because your subjects would not be able to give any kind of informed consent because under the age of 18 in medicine you can't give you 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 can't sign the form when you go in you have to get your, your parents or your guardian have to sign your form so we're doing something which we don't have a lot of data about that if it was an experiment you're actually framing it as an experiment you wouldn't be allowed to do because it would be considered unethical so i think that in itself is something that is concerning on the other hand there in some way some form we're going to have to do research on it and if it turns out that there is uh, after the longitudinal studies, and I think there should be longitudinal studies are done, that it doesn't have, well, then fine. If this is, depending on how your understanding of all the other stuff is, well, then at least you can take that out of the equation, that it doesn't have any effects, although it's hard to see how it wouldn't, maybe, would we wait on the science? But there's not that much waiting on the science going on here, and that's... No, this, this was... That's that's characteristic of a lot of other stuff that's going on at the moment. I do remember a couple of years ago, I think it was a Telegraph expose on the Tavistock, there's a professor at Oxford who referred to it as effectively um, experimentation on children, medical experimentation on children, which is seems fairly accurate. In this case, this, this, as I said, mostly relates to adults. However, we will see what the pace of that is, and I would be very surprised if Tenai does not uh, support the extension of that to younger people. Well, it would be interesting to find out. I'm sure they'll, they'll be back to you. Anyway... So I suppose we shall go out into the, well, into the snow for those who have it, although I think it's rapidly going away. But let's get out there and make our snowmen before it's gone. Uh, and we shall be back on Wednesday. All the best.